First, though, we are talking about the continued gang violence that we are seeing not only on Lower Mainland streets, but also gang-related shootings in Alberta, on Vancouver Island. So joining me to talk a little bit more about this is Doug Spencer, who is a retired Vancouver Police Department detective, gang expert to Odd Squad Society. The list goes on. Doug Spencer, thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome. Uh, what do we know about, or is there any surprise that we're seeing the the gang violence continue and kind of spill out of the Lower Mainland into other provinces and other parts of BC? Yeah, no, it's uh, certainly the worst it's ever been. Um, it, it's no surprise to me and investigators that these the gangs of Vancouver are international. They've been running across Canada selling their drugs and stuff for years. There's been a number of gang members murdered in Toronto, uh, Alberta, Edmonton, Mexico. Uh, One of them was arrested down in the Philippines, a wolf pack guy trafficking with the Mexican cartels. So it's no surprise to us. I, I think a lot of people just don't realize how international the Vancouver gangsters are. And when you say it's the worst it's ever been or the worst that you've seen, what is it, do you think, that's making this round, I guess you would call it, of gang violence so particularly bad? Well, they've brought the public into the, the crosshairs of a rifle. They're, they're doing shootings right out in extremely crowded places, malls and in front of uh, Toys R Us and stuff at Willowbrook. It's just crazy. And I think they actually think that it's, all these people actually kind of camouflage them so they can get up close to their victim. Because normally a, a drive-by shooting out of a car, you're rarely going to hit the person, right? So they're doing it quite uh, succinctly, right? Right up close with assault rifles and stuff, so there's no chance they can miss. Uh, Kim Bolin, uh, who was speaking earlier uh, on Mornings with Simi, she wrote a weekend feature piece uh, and really broke down a a hit, what a gang hit looks like. And I think it might come as a surprise to people, uh, not with your background, but people would think that these are highly trained individuals, that uh, you don't just start shooting people. There's there's a a certain uh, kind of hierarchy when it comes to gangs. Uh, But she's uh, talked about it and reported about uh, that many of these members are inexperienced, it might be a bit of a rite of passage to show that you're committed to the gang. And that could be, is that something that, that we're seeing that could be why we're seeing the public uh, getting hit in some cases and why these hits that just don't seem to be all that professional? Yeah, I mean, the, the kids are getting younger and younger. There was a kid, 14, that was killed in Surrey about six months ago. Um, yeah, they're completely non-professional and they're inexperienced, young, naive kids. So, you know, they're doing these shootings in front of, you know, a thousand cameras at the Vancouver airport. They're going to get caught, but they're so brass and bold. It's almost like they're taking a selfie of themselves. They're going out and doing these shootings for notoriety, like you say, to, to be accepted into the gang. If you do this really wild murder, um, out in the public, it, it's and and then now they're singing about it. There's rap groups amongst these guys that are bragging about what they do. It, it's just it's reckless, and they're gonna, you know, eventually you're gonna get caught, or even if they get caught, they'll get murdered before they go to jail.
there was also talk of, and like you said, this is happening right across the country in that uh, there are times when people who are hired to carry out these hits, they will fly in from another province and then disappear because it makes it much more difficult for law enforcement to, to catch them. Is that something that, that you had seen or is, the, is that something that's happening more now or has that always been the way that gangs do this? Well, traditionally, um, you know, when the Hells Angels kill somebody, it's not out in the public. It's very quiet. And you'll likely not even discover the body, right? They, uh, same with the, the Asian gangs, the big circle boys in them. They bring in a hitman from uh, Hong Kong who comes in and shoots the guy or girl, and they're on the plane back to Hong Kong the next day. Extremely hard to solve that case. So, you know, a lot of these kids are getting caught now because they really don't know what they're doing. And as far as the weapons as well, with the border being closed, not that they were being brought in and declared and legitimately being brought in, but we we knew that there were more guns coming in from the States before. Uh, Now talking about straw purchases, so where those people, uh, and again, this was mentioned in the Kim Bolin article, uh, that if you go and buy uh, nine handguns uh, one day and then they all end up part of a gang shooting, there, there likely could be charges against that person. Is that something more that, that you think is happening or that we're seeing? Is, is that how they're getting these weapons? Um, I think the majority, of, you know, I investigated hundreds of murders in my time in the gang unit and seized hundreds of weapons. All of them were illegal weapons. The ones that I was able to track, maybe 70% of them, uh, from the U.S. So, you know, it's illegal weapons that these guys are using, right? They're not registered legal firearm owners like, you know, this gun new gun ban idiocy is. It's just crazy. You know, they, they can get weapons any way they want. We had a kid a couple of years ago, 14-year-old kid, go down and buy a, a handgun at the Surrey SkyTrain in 30 minutes. You, you, you're not going to stop the guns coming in. But, you know, if you want to do something about it, the the judge has got to start hammering these guys when they use firearms. There's legislation that says a year, three years on top of your sentence if you use a firearm while committing an offense. Start enforcing that and enforce people smuggling guns into Canada if they get caught. Give them a, a, a stiff sentence. In New York, you get eight years using a firearm, right? Yeah. So you got to start doing that. That's the only thing that's going to stop these guys from using firearms. Uh, and I mean, it looks as though uh, the government right now or federal government is really going the other way. Like you said, bringing in a ban that really only targets law-abiding citizens and gun owners and, and has actually reduced those mandatory, uh, the minimums for the gun crimes. Yeah, their thinking is backwards. It's just ridiculous. You know, they're going to go and seize the rifle off a guy that hunts out in Saskatchewan to feed his family. That's going to stop gangs. It's ludicrous, right? They got to start targeting the right people. And very rarely, I don't know why, politicians won't come to the police who are the experts and deal with these guys all the time and how they get their guns and stuff, right? Mm -hmm. The, The whole defund the police thing it's not the police know how to catch these guys there's just no funding right there's no budget defund the police less people go to jail that's the result
Do you think that's the number one thing, though, as you mentioned, as far as uh, not not even bringing in new sentences, but but upholding using the ones the right now that are linked to gun crime? Would that be the number one or what else could possibly be done to deal with this escalation in gang violence? Yeah, well, initially they got to do that. Like I uh, had a case a few years ago where I convicted a guy for trying to he shot somebody, tried to kill them. He, the guy fell down, the victim. He tried to shoot him again in the head and missed. We can we convicted this guy. He gave a full confession, convicted him, and instead of the four years on top of the sentence, he actually didn't go to jail for one day. They put him on the ankle monitor. I, I was just, I was in complete disbelief. I, I went down to the homicide inspector. I said, do you know what the sentence was for this guy? He didn't go to jail. So I had to go out and check that this guy was at an address where he should be. And when I opened the door, he laughed in my face. He said, I didn't even go to jail. Hmm. There's an issue, right? There's no consequences. They're going to keep doing it. What about, I mean, it's mind-boggling to hear that and to think that somebody that that confesses to that crime or is convicted of that crime gets no jail time. How do you kind of, that on the one hand, and then also trying to tell potential gang members of what the life is actually like. I don't know if you've seen it. There's a very graphic video that's that's being circulated. Uh, Global reported on it on Friday uh, that shows a gang member being uh, mutilated in some for lack of a better word, by by members of the same gang and the message being it's not always a glamorous lifestyle. Does that help deter people? Yeah, I, I you know, at Odd Squad, we, we show kids through the eyes of gang members that have lived through their bad decisions by some miracle. We have the gang members talk to the kids and explain, you know, you think this is all glamour and glory. It's misery. And they explain what they're... Uh, bad decisions cost them. Most of them went to jail. Some of them have been shot and lived through that. Some have had their house shot up and a relative hit. Like It's just a a total misery, dead-end road. So if you give kids the information about how they recruit you, what they're going to say to you, uh, and prepare them for it, they'll make the right decision in most cases. Well, you might have seen or heard this story on Friday. It was an encounter with a black bear on the North Shore, and it's lucky that only one person was slightly injured. We're going to hear from him in just a moment. First, wanted to play for you a comment made by one of the conservation officers called to that encounter. Sergeant Dean Miller with the BC Conservation Service spoke about this after the fact. The area was closed down as officers were there looking for this bear and the possibility that this bear may have been involved with other encounters. I, I can't say for sure, um, but I but I can say that the description given by this group and the victim of the bear seems to correspond uh, with a bear that has frequented the adjacent neighbourhood. By what it looks like, um, we actually have trail camera footage of the bear in a in a you know a food conflict situation at a residence nearby here, um, 
So we just we just have to make that determination. And, you know, behavior will also dictate it. I mean, if these similar behaviors are exhibited with other people in the area, and uh, we're just going to, you know, for the near future, be uh, closer by and uh, very attentive to the area. So that's continuing in that area. It's a trail, uh, the Mount Fromm Trail. So let's bring in Fred Hawley. He is one of the hikers involved with the encounter. He got the closest to the bear, although he didn't mean to. Uh, Fred Hawley joins me on the line to talk more about this now. Thanks so much for being with us. Hi, yeah, no problem. Uh, So you were out uh, for this hike on Friday. Things got, uh, well, probably not what you were expecting uh, to have happen. Tell us how things unfolded. Um, sure. Yeah. So my wife and I were on a hike on the Frome trails. Um, yeah, pretty short hike in Lynn Valley. Um, and then, uh, we were, we just saw like a woman and a bear and the bear was really, really close to her. Um, kind of like that looked like it was kind of charging at her and she had been following her for a bit. Um, but as soon as we got there, the bear kind of like just came at us extremely quickly, uh, like way, it was before I like, didn't have, really have time to react at all. Um, and then we were just sort of saying like, whoa, bear, and trying to back away. Um, realized that I'd cut my leg. But um, yeah, then it just kind of kept following us around and doing little charges and pawing at the ground in front of us. At one point, kind of like climbed up a bit of a tree and then jumped down again. Um, stood up on its hind legs a little bit. Um, and... We sort of backed away one way down the trail, then backed away the other way the whole time, just trying to say, like, and like the use like the common assertive woe bear voice mm-hmm. thing. Um, and it kind of just like followed us back and forth for about half an hour. Um, and the whole time we tried to just stay like as close together as a group of three as we could. So, me, my wife, and the woman who we'd run into. Um, at the, at some point my wife called 911, so trying to get through to, uh, I don't know, figure out who to call there. Uh, and then, um, eventually a fourth person, some other woman was coming down the trail, uh, the bear charged at her, uh, and then we all sort of managed to get together. And once we were all four of us together, it, uh, went away. Wow, that's that's something. How long of a time period do you think that that all took place in? Um, we think about half an hour. The like my wife's call with nine one one was twenty minutes, and it, she didn't call immediately, so that was our best guess. And you mentioned that uh, you realized your leg had been cut. So how bad was that, or was that the bear claw that that got your leg, or what happened to you? Yeah, it was the bear claw. So on the first charge, it kind of came up and kind of like just like hit me, and I wasn't really sure what part of it had cut me, but afterwards the conservation officer was able to say pretty, it was pretty obvious that it was a claw. Wow, that's, and and it sounds like you're somebody that hikes in that area or you've been in that area before. Have you seen bears previously when you've been on other hikes? Yeah, so I've seen bears, I mean, a lot and usually, I mean, yeah, growing up in the North Shore and I used to work on Frome and uh, as a mountain bike instructor, so I've spent a lot of time there. Um, and the bears usually will either stay put as you back away or they will run away themselves. Um, this is the first one that I've seen a bear that was acting aggressively. Um, and yeah, I also have, you know, some experience going in on like more like remote hikes on those times that we would bring bear spray and be more ready. But the part that kind of scared me about this 
is that even if I'd had bear spray on me, it, there's not a chance I would have been able to get it out and spray the bear in time to stop it from on that first charge. Right. Um, yeah, like I've practiced using the bear spray and it takes, there's just, there's not, unless I was like hiking up the trail, holding it in my hand, there isn't, it, yeah, I wouldn't, it wouldn't have been able to stop that initial uh, problem. And how big so, of a bear? Yeah. Were, were you able to, to get a sense of if this was a young bear or an, an older bear? Or how, how big was this animal? I mean, at the time, I thought the bear was huge. <laughs> <laughs> um, it seemed gigantic. Uh, talking to, it sounds like this is a bear that uh, the conservation officers and the bear society are like pretty well aware of already. And they can say that it's a juvenile male bear. Um, so yeah, it, it seemed like about average for a black bear as compared to the ones that I've seen, but I've never got even remotely as close as that before. So yeah, I would, yeah, have, it looks too big. <laughs> I would imagine, yeah, in any scenario, it's a bear that's, that's making contact with your leg. It's going to seem like a big, a big creature no matter what. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I understand conservation treated your cut at the scene. Did they give you any any sense of, they also shut the trail down, the, did they give you a sense of what they were going to be doing as far as dealing with this, this aggressive bear? Um, I think you'd have to ask them about what the plan was, but I do know that I, you know, I, I thought that the plan was to uh, kill the bear. Mm. But I don't know. I know that it's one that, that has been on the radar right. of the conservation officers for a while. Like This isn't the first encounter that it's had with people like it's already it was already known as a problem bear and this is the first time that it's but this is the first time that it's you know gotten this aggressive will it change kind of how you approach going on hikes especially going to more remote areas or any hike i guess knowing that there is that potential i think for remote hikes i would stay the same as i have been so i just would have i keep bear spray in like the outer side pocket so i can grab it with one hand um and also i think that bears in remote areas act the way that you would you're more likely to expect a bear to act the problem was this bear has been known it, it just it's used to people already it's known to residents in the valley uh and it's been like eating garbage and approaching people already mm-hmm. um so it didn't act like a normal bear like if i was in a more remote area you don't you wouldn't have this kind of you yeah you wouldn't see this kind of aggression from a black bear which is really unheard of or not unheard of, but it's definitely not typical black bear behavior. Right. So will you get back out hiking then? Um, definitely, yeah. I'm just going to take a little bit of a break and um, be, I mean, I'm definitely going to be really careful. I, I'm not sure if I'm going to, I definitely don't feel comfortable hiking alone at all at the moment. I'm going to give that some time. And yeah, the other part that scared me the most, I guess, is that this was just like a local in Valley Trail. This wasn't any of the more remote hikes that I've done, this was kind of like a few hundred meters away from where I used to be an instructor for like kids bike camps and where there's like two elementary schools within a few kilometers of where, of the trail. Um, so yeah, going to be more careful about where I take bear spray All right. and where I would be comfortable going alone. All right. Well, glad to hear that it was uh, just a, a minor scratch, although still more of an encounter, I think, than anybody would ever want uh, with a black bear. Uh, Fred, thanks so much for joining us to talk more about this uh, and raising awareness about this. Appreciate it. All right. No problem. All right.
That was Fred Hawley. He was out hiking with his wife, one of several hikers that encountered the black bear. As of now, or as of a couple of hours ago, the Conservation Officer Service put out an update saying that the area is still closed to the public. They're asking people to avoid that area near Mount Frome, and they are still looking for the bear that was engaged or that was involved in that encounter. So we will bring you any updates as they become available. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, this is a story involving a Ryanair plane and some calling it a hijacking. It's being called something even more serious than that as well. More details on that when we return. Well, you just heard the BC Ferries report. Things getting a little busier, but we heard from ferries this weekend that the volume and the amount of traffic on ferries not near what we would see during a normal May long weekend. We also heard from RCMP saying they turned back just north of 100 vehicles. Two people were fined at long weekend checkpoints, checkpoints on the highways that uh, go between the expanded health authorities. But we wanted to check in with the mayor of Seashell to see how things are going on the Sunshine Coast. And Mayor Darnell DeSegers joins me on the line now. Thanks so much for taking the time. Hello, Jill. Thanks for having me. Uh, how have things been on what would normally be a very busy weekend on the Sunshine Coast? Well, what we're finding is ferries up to the Sunshine Coast are pretty full. We have a lot of people coming up here. But uh, if you go out in the community, there actually aren't a lot of people out and about. So they're staying put wherever they're finding themselves being. And that's got to help ease concerns for people if one of the concerns is somebody might come and spread the virus and take it and, and bring it to the community. If people are coming and staying put, is that is that good enough? Well, it's the larger Airbnbs, the larger short-term rentals that are still a concern for some in the community because we don't know if they, they are family groups, right? So those are the ones that are concerned, but the stores and the um, grocery stores and such are saying that people are generally very respectful and keeping their distance. And our locals know that if it's a long weekend, we pretty much stay home most of the weekend. We're not out and about and interacting with them. Right. So do you think it's mainly, is it people, or I don't know if there's even a way to know this, if it's people that are coming and staying in Airbnbs or staying in rentals or people that have second homes uh, that on the Sunshine Coast coming and kind of uh, still coming to the Sunshine Coast but hunkering down in their homes? We have no way of knowing. Um, there's no, you know, we, we know that some of our short-term rentals up here are full because of people who are working here. So we don't know the people that are coming, what they're coming for. If they're visiting family, if they're renting, if they're coming to their homes. We have no way, no way of knowing that. How are things going as far as, do you know if there have been cases of COVID or how many cases on the Sunshine Coast? Yes. Um, the last notice that we got said there were 18, which is the highest that we've seen. That was uh, what came out this past week. Um, our vaccination rates are probably one of the highest in the province. We are already doing second doses for the long-term care homes and frontline workers, you know, in hospitals, et cetera. And our community is stepping up and getting vaccinated because we want to be protected and we want to be a place where we can welcome visitors, hopefully this summer or early in the fall.
That's great news. Is it word of mouth, do you think? Or just that, like you said, the, the idea of the sooner people are vaccinated and get that second dose and get that done, that the area can open up and, and depend so much as it does sometimes of the year on tourism? Well, I think uh, part of it is that we have an older demographic here. So about 50% of our population is over 50. And they are wanting to protect themselves, protect their friends and family. So they're stepping up. But it recently opened to ages 12 and up, as we know. And I'm hearing that we're having lots of families starting to book for their children as well. And those vaccinations are moving forward as well. What would you like to see then as far as the reopening that we're going to be hearing tomorrow? One o'clock tomorrow, we're going to hear from the Premier, the Health Minister, Dr. Bonnie Henry, uh, the Jobs Minister. Is there anything specific in there that you as uh, the Mayor of Seashell would like to hear? I think we'd like to see the restaurants be able to open up to indoor indoor seating. Um, I, my anticipation is that we will see some of that and that they will take it really slowly. So um, we, we meet every week with Vancouver Coastal Health and get updates from them. So our anticipation is that they will open, you know, perhaps indoor uh, dining and then wait and see what happens. And if that goes well, then open something else, wait and see if that goes well. So it'll be gradual so that we don't get another wave. What would uh, another example then of things that are closed, uh, say, on the Sunshine Coast that would be part of that gradual reopening? Probably more of our recreation facilities. Right. So, you know, they're they're really shut down right now. And it would be nice to see those opening up again. Are there any concerns that you have that if it's done too quickly, it will bring people back in bigger crowds and people getting the idea or getting the message that all is good again and that it could lead to perhaps a resurgence? Definitely. Definitely. We, I mean, if they, if they go quickly, I think we potentially would because we aren't out of the woods yet. We don't have enough people um, even completing their first vaccine and we need the second to provide that immunity. How are the operators doing? If you talk to people that uh, rely on tourism, that are that rely on that, uh, and, and again, we know why things are closed and that this has mm-hmm. to happen, but it's still got to, even with the, the government funding and programs that people can access, it's still got to be very difficult for people. It is difficult. And I, I think there's one group of businesses that you're going to be hearing more about in the next while, and that's the businesses that opened up just at the start of the pandemic or expanded just at the start of the pandemic or early on because they all of the funding is based on previous year's revenue numbers and they don't have those. And so they've been left out of the funding from the federal government. Uh, provincial government has found a way to provide some funding to them, but one of our local businesses has taken a lead on that and it's becoming a national issue. So watch for that. They they believe they've come up with a solution, and we'll hope, we hope that they have. Mm, all right. Can you say what kind of business, or is that coming in? It's a restaurant. Okay. Yeah, it's a restaurant. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's got to be tough. I remember even seeing restaurants opening or cafes opening anywhere during the pandemic. You you kind of had to wonder how they were making a go of it, not no, with so much uncertainty. But but it certainly did happen. Well, a lot of them, the ones that did go ahead and open, had actually committed. Prior, So they'd rented space, they'd hired staff, you know, put in all the infrastructure. 
So they, they had to start recouping some of their funds. They were committed to moving forward. So they did. I mean, all, none of us knew what it was going to look like at the beginning. Uh, but then when the funding came out based on previous year's revenues, 2019 year revenues, and they didn't have any, they didn't qualify for those. So they've been hanging on. Uh, if, if we can find some way to support them, they'll be around at the end when this all opens up. Um, if we don't in the next while, I'm afraid we're going to lose some of them. Do you think that there'll be any kind of permanent change to seashells in the surrounding area? I've been talking to people, even anecdotally, who have uh, cabins, who have second homes in that area, saying they've talked to people who have moved there, realizing they can work from home. Uh, maybe they can do some kind of hybrid work working system. It's still, while it's it's getting more expensive, it is still for many people, it's more affordable than other other areas. Do you think it's going to change the demographic or even change the population of that area? It has already. We're already seeing a lot of younger families move here because they can work from home. And I think all of us going back are going to find we're not going to be going back full time into an office. It will be more of a hybrid model. We still don't know what that looks like. But I think that's what we're going to be seeing. And so that actually really works in their favor because they wouldn't be necessarily commuting if they're, you know, down lower mainland, they wouldn't necessarily be commuting every day, but a few days a week. And that makes it more palatable to be able to live here and work, you know, have your place of business down lower mainland. So is that a good thing or are there any concerns that go with that? I think it, I think it's a good thing. I think it it provides a younger vibe in the community and supports the restaurants and the other businesses that we have going here. So I think it's great. And moving forward then, I guess we'll have to wait and see what the plan is tomorrow when it's announced. Uh, and and like you said, I think the key is going to be this happening gradually. Uh, it's not like everybody is being encouraged to, to book to go to Sea Shelter, book to go to the Sunshine Coast on the next weekend. Do you have concerns no. at all about things opening up too quickly? I think I think most people learned from the last time we opened up and are really concerned about the variants. So I think people are more responsive to the recommendations that are coming down from the province because we, we are seeing an end. We're starting to see the end of this. And we all know that if we hunker down, follow the rules, we're going to get there quicker than if we don't. All right. We will leave it there for today. Mayor Darnelda Seegers, thank you so much for joining us and talking more about this. Thank you very much. We are talking a little bit about taxes right now. We tend to talk about this every year around this time, although the date's a little different. Tax Freedom Day, and this is a day calculated by the Fraser Institute, that day where people have paid all of the taxes they owe are free of the taxes. So how significant is it that the date has changed? Let's talk a little bit more about that with Jake Fuss, a Fraser Institute economist, also the author of this new report on Tax Freedom Day. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks very much for having me on. Can you go through, and I know we do this every year, but recap a little bit on how you come up with the date, what actually goes into that that formula? Yeah, so as you mentioned, every year we calculate Tax Freedom Day to provide information about the total tax bill faced by average Canadian families. So Tax Freedom Day is essentially the day in the year when the average Canadian family has earned enough money 
to pay the taxes imposed by all three levels of government. So that's federal, provincial, and local. And they pay it basically as an upfront cost in these calculations. So in 2021, we estimate Tax Freedom Day falls on May 24th, um, which is about a week later than we saw last year in 2020. And what is what's factoring in then as far as pushing at that seven days? Yeah, so if we look at the changes from last year, um, what we're actually seeing is the rebound in the Canadian economy is really driving an increase in consumption. Um, we're seeing a bounce back in incomes for Canadians as well. So this is driving higher tax revenues for governments across Canada and things like sales taxes and personal income taxes in particular. Um, so it's not necessarily a, a change in tax rates in any of the provinces. Um, it's more of a bounce back in the tax revenues and just kind of the recovery of the economy in general. Because I seem to recall last year when it landed on May 17th, when it landed earlier, the the message was kind of similar, saying it's not really a reason to celebrate. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the reasons why we saw um, last year mainly um, the, the change back to May 17th was really um, a, a drop in tax revenues that we saw. Obviously, this was a brief period, um, almost entirely driven by the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, but what we're seeing again this year, now now it's coming a week later, um, but at the same time, we're seeing governments across Canada run large deficits. Um, so we're estimating the federal and provincial governments will run about $234 billion in deficits this year. Obviously, you know, a lot of that is, is necessary um, as we have emergency spending to deal with the fallout from the pandemic. Um, but at the same time, we have to understand that these costs are going to be passed on to you know, future generations and to other times um, where we will likely will face higher taxes in the future to pay for a lot of today's spending. Um, so we, we calculate um, you know, that Tax Freedom Day would arrive eight, 44 days later on July 7th um, if we financed um, all of today's spending with current taxation instead of um, running large deficits. So it's just kind of an estimate of where we might be you know, uh, in years from now when, when we start increasing tax rates to deal with uh, some of these things. And can you tie it then to, like you said, the pandemic and it was so what we were looking at as far as the different programs and plans and the fact that we were dealing with the, the earlier months of a pandemic last year when it fell on May 17th. Uh, is there an ideal day in that I think people would would say, OK, well, we know we have to pay taxes. And again, this is talking about everything from income tax, health tax, sales tax, uh, property tax, carbon tax, so all of the different taxes. Uh, is there a, an ideal day? or a better day that you think it should fall on? Yeah, great question. So, you know, for us, Tax Freedom Day is not necessarily intended to measure, you know, benefits or quality of services that Canadians receive from government in return for their taxes. Um, You know, so ultimately, it's just really about, like, understanding your family's total tax burden so you can assess the value you receive from government services and income transfers. Income transfers, excuse me. Um, so we view Tax Freedom Day as really a way to get the discussion about value going. So it's ultimately up to each individual Canadian to decide if they're getting their money's worth. Um, you know, are you receiving good value for the services you receive? And you know, ultimately determining what level of taxation you're willing to accept. Um, so that's certainly you know what our intent is in doing these Tax Freedom Day calculations. Uh, and you mentioned as well, this is the amount of tax that the average Canadian family uh, will pay. And I think the numbers that uh, came out uh, in, in your study here, so the average Canadian family earning around $125,000 in income, paying about $48,000, dollars in, in total taxes. What about, we often hear, <clears throat> excuse me, about loopholes. We hear about the, the ultra-rich finding ways to get out of paying taxes, to get around that. Does that play, does that factor into this? 
Yeah, so one of the interesting things that we actually see, um, because mainly because of the progressive nature of our personal income tax system, um, you obviously pay more taxes um, the higher that your um, income level is. Um, so what we actually see is that um, the top uh, 20% or so of households uh, based on income in Canada actually pay about 55% of taxes um, in Canada. So obviously that's a disproportionate amount um, compared to how much they actually earn in income. It's about 44% of the total income in Canada. Um, and then if we kind of look at the, the lower end of the uh, income distribution, we have you know the bottom 20% of income earning families in Canada um, paying about 2% of the total tax um, in all of Canada. Um, so it, it's just kind of interesting to show, you know, the, the differences as we have that progressive nature of the income tax system, as I was mentioning. Um, but, you know, that's just kind of a different uh, phenomenon that we see year after year to kind of the breakdown between different income groups. And also the breakdown province to province. Why do we see such a difference? And again, when you calculate this on where Tax Freedom Day falls, uh, say that it's different, uh, say, in B.C., Manitoba, Quebec, that there's such different dates. Yeah, great question. So a lot of it comes down to um, some of the differences in terms of income between provinces. Um, so Alberta and B.C., for example, are some of the higher income uh, provinces um, compared to Atlantic Canada in particular. Um, you also see differences in tax rates. So certain provinces will have um, higher personal income tax rates. Others will have lower ones. Um, same with sales taxes. Yeah, if you look at a province like Alberta or something like that, um, they might not have they, they don't have a sales tax. Um, whereas BC and other provinces do. So there's going to be differences um, kind of um, along those lines as well. Um, So it's really differences in tax rates as well as your income level in the province. And just to go back to something you mentioned as well, either uh, as well, this is late taking a look at Tax Freedom Day, but the report has also uh, called or calculated the balanced budget Tax Freedom Day. So what are the, the main differences there? Yeah, so obviously, you know, today's deficits must one day be paid for by taxes. Um, so that means, you know, that the projected federal and provincial government deficits this year, um, like I mentioned, it's about $234 billion this year. That should basically be considered as deferred taxation for the future. Um, so if Canadian governments had to raise taxes to balance their budgets instead of financing spending with deficits, that means tax freedom day would, would arrive 44 days later on July 7th. Um, So the key takeaway here is that these deficits are money the younger generation will have to pay back, and these higher higher taxes will be paid for um, by average Canadian families. Um, And that's certainly something that will be concerning in the future, Um, but obviously we have to deal with uh, the fallout from the pandemic uh, in the near term. Is it mainly the fallout from the pandemic, you think, that's that's having this impact? Or is it also the current government? Is it the government structure as far as the taxes as you laid them out and the tax system and spending? Yeah, so I think it's a combination of a whole bunch of different factors. Um, you know, certainly when we look at uh, the deficit side and sort of the balanced budget um, tax freedom day, um, Obviously, a lot of that is driven by COVID-19, but at the same time, we were seeing um, quite significant deficits before the pandemic as well, and spending was at you know, record highs, um, federally at least. Um, so, you know, this is kind of a carryover from the period, you know, really um, fi- the last five years before the pandemic as well, um, that is driving a lot of this as well. Um, so we were seeing, you know, later balanced budget tax freedom days across the country before COVID-19. Um, and now it's just getting delayed even more um, now while we're running really historic um, levels of deficits. So, um, you know, this is certainly a trend that could could continue for quite some some years now too, as we're expecting a lot of provinces and the federal government to continue running deficits 
um, and to continue spending quite a bit of money um, in the next few years here. All right. Jake Fuss, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for your time, for coming on the show to talk more about this. Thanks very much for having me on. Well, coming up this half hour, a lot of people have been calling the buzz line and there is a pretty good debate going on on whether or not you would give that t- ticket back. Talking about the $1 million lottery ticket that a store owner found in the garbage. So I will share with you some of the thoughts of people on that story. Right now, though, we're taking a look at some fine work being done by a local artist offering to sketch people's portraits for $50 and the proceeds of the sketches all go to the Kelsa Aid and Give India, helping people who have been devastated by the pandemic in India. And our show contributor, John Jang, is here now with more on that. Good afternoon, Jill. One local artist has found a way to use his talent to make a difference in the world. Nishant Jain, a.k.a. the Sneaky Artist, has started something called the 100 Faces for India Project. And as the name suggests, Nishant has been raising money for India by drawing portraits of people. The goal is to assist with India's COVID-19 relief efforts as the country still struggles through an unprecedented health crisis. Earlier today, I spoke with the Sneaky Artist himself and asked him, how this all came together. I started the project uh, just as news of the second wave of COVID uh, uh, n- numbers and infections started to come out of India. And I've been looking for different ways to use my art and use my social media reach in order to provide help to different organizations. There are a number of organizations in India that provide relief to populations that are often not reached very easily, who are not first in the line for relief or aid or medical supplies. So I like to support these organizations. I'm privileged enough to be earning in a foreign currency whose value multiplies significantly when it's translated to rupees. So I I like to be able to do that. And I was thinking of where I fit in as an artist, as a person who can, whose art is in demand from a lot of people, and how can I best help? So I came up with this idea of drawing a hundred faces for people who were willing to support my my donation drive. And the idea was that I would draw an ink portrait in my style from a, a picture that they would give me. In exchange, uh, they would pay the donation amount and I would give 100% of that donation amount to the charities of my choice, which is Give India and Khalsa Aid. And well, I saw it from my end as a contribution of my time, of my my, my skills. And from uh, the end of the people who are supporting my project, it's it's a financial contribution. And everybody in this transaction benefits in so many beautiful ways that it it sounded immediately to me like a win-win, that I could give some art to people who might not know my work, might not have my art. And in in turn, I get get the joy of doing something productive with my time instead of worrying over the, the alarming numbers. And... While doing all of this, I'm able to send a lot of good aid to people that need it. So we, I started the project last month. Uh, it's very quickly become the 100 plus faces for India. And uh, I just hit 150 and I've opened up to another 25 uh, contributors. And I'm going to keep going, I think, uh, in small batches. As long as there are people willing to help, as long as I'm able to keep drawing, and as long as there are people that can be helped by the work I'm doing. 
Nishant, for people listening today that might want to get involved, raise money for India and get one of their own portraits. First of all, how much is it to get one of these portraits that are hand-drawn by you? And how can they actually get in touch with you? So my website is uh, sneakyartist.com. I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, and I share the link to booking a spot on all of these different platforms. It's quite easy once you find me on Instagram or Twitter or you go to my website. And uh, it's $50. So for $50, the $50 goes to Give India or to Khalsa Aid. And in return, as soon as I make the drawing, I send uh, by email, I send an ink scan of my drawing. So a digital file of the drawing to the person who's made the contribution. Perfect. And in the event that people want to learn more about you, your work and your background, Nishant, you also have a podcast that people can check out. Yeah, that's true. So uh, I'm I'm an artist by accident. I'm not, uh, I didn't set out to be an artist. I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to make uh, comics and that's what I was doing online. And even that came out of a lot of deliberation. I fell into it from simply from doing it and loving it and then choosing to do that with my life. And I was on this journey to become an artist by by observing my world. So I took on this practice of what I call sneaky art in order to become an artist because I'm not educated as an artist. I'm not trained. I'm a self-taught artist in that sense that I walk around cities and I look at the cityscapes. I look at the people and the beautiful, wonderful things that they're doing in the city. And I make drawings of the things that look beautiful to me. And in that process, I become an artist. I become better at drawing things. So uh, this podcast also started with the same idea of connecting with other artists who appreciate the urban world, appreciate the built environment that we live in all around the world. And on my podcast, which is the Sneaky Art Podcast, I speak to what's known as urban sketchers in different parts of the world. My guests are from Singapore, from Hong Kong, from other parts of the US and Europe who have in different ways devoted their lives to observing this world that we live in, that all of us live in, and finding moments of beauty in it. And so that's what we talk about. We talk about what they do, where they do it, how they do it, what do they really see in their world, and what makes them, what compels them almost to be artists of this this observation. Nishant, I, I think your work is absolutely incredible. The amount of detail, the very unique style, it is all tremendous. And I am blown away by the fact that it is all handmade. Best of luck with this project, and thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you for having me. This has been a lot of fun. And Jill, that website again is sneakyartist.com, and to know now that Nishant is a self-taught artist is just mind-boggling, because the quality of work here is actually just tremendous. He mentioned wanting to be a comic book creator. That might still be in the works one day, because this is the kind of quality that people would, and are now, happily paying for. Back to you, Joe.